You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Abraham Lincoln, Muhammad, William Shakespeare, Napoleon, Jesus of Nazareth. So according to a recent software project that scoured the world's written and digital archives to determine the most influential person to ever live, Jesus Christ was deemed the most important person in the history of the world. But unlike many other historical figures, the most important part of Jesus's life on earth was actually his death. And that was solidified by the fact that he did not stay dead, which we're going to talk about next week. But today in Mark 15, we're looking at arguably the most important event in the life of the most important person in the history of the world. It's the very foundation of Christianity, but given the familiarity and centrality of the death of Jesus, it can be easy to skip over its impact on our daily lives. And so today, we want to ask God to give us fresh eyes as we zoom in on this incredible event, that we'd walk away changed, like that hardened centurion that we just read about, who seeing Jesus' death up close was convinced that this man was, in fact, the Son of God. So we're going to walk through the text this morning by asking three questions. Number one, how did Jesus suffer? Number two, why did Jesus suffer like this? And number three, what does his suffering mean for us? So we're going to walk through them one by one. But first, let's pray. Father, these are incredible, incredible words that we're lingering over today. We ask that by your spirit, you would help us. You would prepare our hearts. You would show your glory and your shocking love for us in the mystery of the cross. Change us, we pray. Amen. All right, so first of all, let's look at the text in Mark 15 and ask how, how did Jesus suffer? So I think Mark is going to show us three primary categories in the text. Jesus endured physical torment, emotional trauma, and spiritual agony. So initially, we're going to walk through some of the ways that Jesus endured physical suffering on this most important day in history. So if you look at your Bible, um, we're going to start in the beginning of of chapter 15. So just to set the stage, after Jesus' arrest, very early in the morning, Jesus is brought to Pontius Pilate by the high council of Jewish religious leaders. And he's, he's being tried for the claims to be the actual son of God and then to appease the Romans or to, to get a conviction, I guess, out of Pilate that he had claimed to be a king. And during the trial, it becomes clear to Pilate that Jesus is innocent and that the chief priests are just envious of this upstart teacher and revolutionary, as they said. However, Pilate bends to the will of the crowd. He sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion, something clearly Jesus does not deserve, but is a death fitting for one committing treason against Rome. And as was customary prior to a Roman execution, Jesus is scourged. Well, scourging 
by itself is this incredibly painful torture. It was inflicted by a whip that had multiple cords in it that would commonly have bits of sheep bone and sharp pieces of metal throughout. And this instrument is designed to inflict maximum pain and blood loss on a recipient as every single lash would have ripped out massive pieces of flesh, exposing the skeletal muscles beneath. And so with his hands tied to a post, Jesus endures this horrific pain at the hands of Roman soldiers as a crowd of onlookers watches. And like many other things on this day, Jesus knows that, that this was coming. He had specifically mentioned flogging, scourging, to his disciples back in chapter 10. But after this flogging, Jesus has already lost a massive amount of blood. His back has literally been ripped to shreds, and he would have been incredibly weak. Now, at this point, the Roman soldiers drag him away to the governor's palace, where they would commence a new level of mockery and humiliation. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they ram the symbol of the curse of mankind that was given to Adam onto the head of the second Adam. And now with fresh blood running down Jesus' face, they start to beat him over the head with a mock scepter, driving those thorns deeper into his temples and his forehead. When this horrific ordeal is complete, they rip off the mock royal robe and they lead him outside the city walls to Golgotha, the the hill of the skull. And now already weakened and bloodied to a state barely recognizable, Jesus is to be crucified. Again and again, Jesus is fulfilling scripture. In Isaiah 52, written hundreds of years before this moment, the prophet wrote, many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So Jesus has been marred to the point beyond resemblance. He hardly even looks human. And now for the crucifixion. And today, when we hear the word crucifixion, we probably almost instantly think of Jesus. But Back then, this was actually a fairly common method of torture, humiliation, and execution that Rome used liberally on non-citizens. However, it was reserved for the absolute dregs of humanity, for criminals. And writing in the first century, Mark would not have had to explain crucifixion to his readers. They would have been very familiar with it. But we don't live in a time, thankfully, where that is a commonplace event. And so after being forced to carry the horizontal crossbeam through the streets, Jesus collapses, requiring a random stranger from the crowd named Simon to carry it the rest away. And at the top of the hill, Jesus is now thrown down onto his back, exacerbating his already open wounds. They grab his hands, place iron stakes over his wrist joints, and drive giant nails through them. He's lifted up and affixed to the vertical beam, now forming that familiar T of the cross, where his feet are now nailed as well. And Now, the cause of death in a crucifixion is typically suffocation. With the entire weight of your body hanging by your wrists, you cannot properly exhale. 
Suffice it to say that for the next six hours, every single breath that Jesus takes is excruciating. The cumulative physical suffering and pain that Jesus endures throughout this crucifixion are almost beyond our imagination. And I think it's important for us to understand the flesh and blood reality of this moment, not only because by his wounds we are healed, but because the first readers would have been intimately familiar with this level of suffering. And yet, there is a pattern of psychological and emotional suffering that's perhaps even worse. And so we move to the second vantage point within our initial heading of how Jesus suffers, and it's the emotional trauma. So we're going to rewind the scene back to six in the morning and watch this unfold from a new vantage point, a new perspective. So first of all, verses one through five again, Jesus is rejected. He's rejected by the religious leaders. He's brought before Pilate and he's accused of many things. And Joe talked about this last week. Jesus didn't do the things that he's accused of. He's falsely accused. Have you ever been accused of something that you did not do? You know the instinct of self-defense and justification that wells up within you in that moment? Jesus feels that temptation, and he promptly crushes it. He's faithful to the, the plan that he and the Father have set out for. He knows that this is how it must be. But to, it is painful. I mean, it is painful. It hurts to hear your name, your reputation dragged through the mud and just to allow it to happen. And it hurts especially because these priests and these leaders are the ones specifically charged by God to protect his people, to guide him toward, to guide them toward truth, to help the people listen to him. And here's the God man standing in their midst and they are spitting on him, literally and figuratively, completely rejecting his gracious rule. And so there's emotional trauma number two. But next, Jesus is rejected by the government. He's brought before Pilate, and as a reader, there's kind of this dramatic tension moment where you think maybe Jesus is going to get justice. But no, Pilate's cowardice before the people results in a rejection for Jesus there as well. The true high king of the universe suffers injustice in a system specifically designed to give justice. And, I mean, we know that injustice, being treated unfairly, it cuts to the core of the human soul. And Jesus, God in the flesh, he has been through that. And then Jesus is rejected by the people. In 13 to 15, we see that the same Jewish crowds that had accepted Jesus into the, into the city shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, waving palm branches as he rides into the city on a donkey, well, that same crowd, they're now turning on him completely. Given the choice between a convicted murderer and the sinless giver of life, the people choose Barabbas over Jesus. And this signals the kind of king that they were hoping for. I mean, they were hoping for a king that would storm into Rome and throw down the Roman rule by force. But instead... These crowds that Jesus has taught, led, fed, healed, and ultimately came to save, send him to die. And again, here, we, I mean, we can understand how painful the disapproval and disdain of other people is, even if we haven't been 
subjected to the outright hatred of a bloodthirsty mob. And in this moment, the disciples, even Jesus' friends, they're nowhere to be found. As this rejection builds, we move to the third vantage point on how Jesus suffers, and it's the spiritual agony. As awful the physical torment, as degrading and humiliating the emotional trauma by each successive party, the reason Jesus' death is different than any before or since comes in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't think that we're going to be able to fully understand the mystery of what Jesus said in that moment. But we know on some level that Jesus is forsaken. He's abandoned. He's deserted. He's stranded by God himself. And he feels this intense pain of loss and loneliness in the core of his soul. But he's asking a question here. He's asking why. And so this is a good time for us to press in and ask that question with him. Why in the world is the perfect son suffering like this? Physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Why is he forsaken? So we're going to move to point two in our outline here. Why, 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 why is Jesus suffering like this? There's a few clues in Mark that illustrate it for us. We're going to go back to the night before when Jesus is praying in the darkness of Gethsemane. Joe talked about it a little bit last week, but during his prayers, Jesus includes this fairly odd phrase about a cup. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now, the cup is obviously figurative. Jesus is not holding a disposable goblet in that moment. It's the same one he references in chapter 10 when James and John come to him and they say, Lord, let us sit on your right hand and your left when you come in power. And he turns to them and he says, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? So what's this cup all about? Well, in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Isaiah, there's references in chapter 51 to a cup of staggering, which is the bowl of wrath that God's enemies must drink. The cup is a symbol of God's just anger his judgment upon evil that must be poured out. I mean, perhaps you can imagine this. I mean, picture, picture a cup, a big goblet. And then imagine that every time that evil has been committed by the human race since the beginning of time, the cup is filling up. It's filling up drip by drip. And justice must be done. God is a good king. He cannot allow evil to go unpunished. Someone has to drink the cup. So either you and I will drink the poison cup of God's judgment on our sin, our rebellion, or someone else has to drink it in our place. And so in these moments on the cross, that's what's happening. 
Jesus is drinking the cup. He's draining it to the bottom. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin. And in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus here is being treated as sin itself, capital S, as a very curse to be wiped out. And it's for our sake that this is happening. And so now knowing that background, let's think more about why Jesus calls out the way he does. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've seen that Jesus is experiencing God's judgment upon sin. And along with the physical, emotional, and psychological agony, there's this profound sense of abandonment that comes closer to breaking Jesus than almost anything else on this day. Well, in the Bible, there's a, there's a connection between the judgment of God and the felt absence of God. In the garden, we remember, after the fall into sin, Adam and Eve are sent out. They're sent out of the garden, away from the unique presence of the Lord that was walking with them in the garden. When God's people Israel fall into a desperate state of idolatry and rebellion, God allows them to be exiled, to be sent away from God's unique presence in the temple and in the tabernacle. And at the end of time, the final judgment is described in 2 Thessalonians 1 as the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So let's put those two things together. So Jesus on the cross, as darkness overtakes the land, I mean, literally, the sun stops shining for three hours in the middle of the day. That's a signal that something really, really, really bad is happening. Darkness overtakes the land. It signals the judgment of God. And Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath on sin, and it's felt most acutely in the soul-tearing act of God, his Father, turning away from him. That judgment is felt most acutely in abandonment. Jesus is left alone, and with that, he absorbs God's wrath on our behalf as our substitute. There's one other important aspect to note from the Gospel of Mark on why Jesus suffers. Jesus says himself earlier in Mark, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew what this mission, ending in the cross, was all about, and he says it's fundamentally about a ransom payment. He's paying a costly price with his own life, with his blood, with his body. He is paying that costly price to redeem us, to buy us back. And what struck me this week as I was studying Mark 15 is just how shocking it is that Jesus would pay this price for the type of people that are depicted in the text. Over and over, Jesus is deserted by his friends. He's slandered by the religious leaders. He's convicted unjustly by the government. He's mocked, laughed at, humiliated over and over and over again. 
by all different kinds of people. I mean, prior to his death in this chapter, there is not a single positive description of someone in their actions toward Jesus. Not one. And this reminds me of Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So do you hear that? I mean, Jesus dies not for the good people. Jesus dies for the ungodly, for the profane, for the sinners, for the enemies. I mean, this is shocking. How much does the whole of Mark 15 showcase this? I mean, in one sense, you can see, like, the entire array of humanity there as the, representing the enemies, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of God, fully and completely against him, even as, in that moment, he is holy and absolutely for them, for us. He's giving his life so that we could live. And God did this. I mean, the Father and the Son agreeing together because he loves us. I mean, he loves us in spite of us. His love is not just unconditional, it's contra-conditional. We were not lovable according to the conditions of the covenant that he laid out. And so love like this, it's just beyond our understanding. But it is an absolute joy to experience it. And with that, now that we've seen, one, how Jesus suffered, two, why Jesus suffered, we're going to turn to our final point here, what his suffering means for us. And we're going to zero in here on the text itself because we have things to do and because we'd be here through August if we tried to unpack all of the implications on the cross of Christ on our lives. But let's look here in verse 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So I think there's two main takeaways that we can leave with this morning on what the cross means for us means access and confidence. Access and confidence. When Jesus dies, he finishes the work. And the curtain, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That signals that it is God's initiative. God is coming down to us. We're not coming up to him. God is initiating here. It's coming from top to bottom. And this curtain, this is the one that would have separated the most holy place, the most special and intimate place in the entire temple, the place where the high priest was only allowed in there once a year. And he had to bring a a guilt offering for the sin of the people every time he went in. And what Jesus accomplished on the cross, which is depicted vividly by the tearing of the curtain, it rips wide open 
the way to God, the way to experience his presence, not away from his presence anymore, invited into his presence, the presence of the real living God. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, in Hebrews 4, the author puts it like this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of the finished suffering of Jesus, the curtain is now ripped wide open. And we can draw near to the God of the universe with confidence, not sheepishly, not sulking, not unsure if he loves us. We can be sure. The cross shows us that. The ripped open curtain, it shows us that. We can draw near with confidence to receive grace whenever we need it. Today, I mean, that curtain, it is still open. And so, are, are you anxious this morning? Come close. Are you worn out? Come this way. Are you grieving? The curtain says, enter in. Do you need help? Well, head straight up to the throne, dear friend. Because of Jesus, by faith in him, you are welcome in the palace of the high king, no longer as a stranger or an enemy, but as a daughter, as a son. And so this brings us to the table where our access to the presence of God and our confidence of him, in him, and in his love for us is cemented week after week. This is what this meal means. And we've just walked through the very passage, the very passage that this this meal is all about. We've seen how Jesus' body was broken for us. And we've watched how Jesus drank the cup of judgment in our place so that now this cup, it's one of victory. Why don't you pray with me as the uh, band and the servers can come up to prepare the table. Father, what can we say what can we say to you other than thank you, Father? Thank you, Jesus, for the grace that you showed at Calvary, enduring the cross for the joy that was set before you, despising the shame. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for the physical, emotional, spiritual agony that you went through in our place as our substitute so that now we are granted access into the, into the palace of our Father. Lord, would you make that a reality in our souls this morning? Would you change us, transform us, help us to experience the reality of your love for us fresh, as we marvel at the love of Christ at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.